Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello there, history friends. Zach Twomley here, as always, delivering you the latest installment of the Versailles Anniversary Project. If you were not aware, When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which is a wonderful network of other independent history and non-history podcasts that aim to educate you, bring you information, and just give you some good audio content. The reason why I bring this up isn't just because it's a good fact that you should be aware of, but also because the Agora Podcast Network is essentially organising what's being called the Intelligent Speech Conference, which you can find out more about by going to intelligentspeechconference.com or following the link in the description below. If you enter in the code WDF, you'll get 5% off the tickets for the event, and you should know that the tickets have been significantly reduced in price because the lovely people in charge of organising the event, that is Roy Phil Brown, managed to track down a much better, more roomy venue. So if you would like to hear from and potentially meet 
podcasters such as David Crowther, Kevin Stroud, and even Mike Duncan, yes I said Mike Duncan of History of Roman Revolutions fame, then make sure and go and check that out. That is intelligentspeechconference.com or use the hashtag intelspeech19. Unfortunately, I won't be able to be there because I can't bring myself to New York by the 29th of June, but you should definitely go in any case. And who knows, maybe in the future, if these things do well enough, I will be able to bring myself to the United States of America once again. Maybe meeting people in person is not your thing, though. Maybe you'd rather do things over social media, over the interweb. In that case, When Diplomacy Fails is gotcha covered. Simply check out When Diplomacy Fails on Twitter or on Facebook, at WDF Podcast, Facebook group, Facebook page. You know the drill by now. What you may not know is that this podcast has recently joined an app called Flick. Flick is a great way to bypass all of those perhaps more awkward social media platforms and simply get down and dirty, or get down and clean, whatever you want to call it, with history discussions that actually matter to you. Again, simply click on the link in the description below or search out the app Flick, that's F-L-I-C-K, in the iTunes Apple Store, whatever it's called, or the Android Store. I'm not really sure what these stores are called, but you can find Flick there either way. It's really easy to set up your account, and of course, it's absolutely free. So once you do that, you'll be able to tune in and plug in to all the discussions we have going on. Finally, because we like doing things in trilogies, don't we? This podcast is on Patreon, so if you would like to find more content, as if you needed more content, but just in case you do, go over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails to get access to ad-free episodes of the Versailles Anniversary Project with the scripts attached, and to access an hour of extra content every single month. You know the drill by now, guys. This is a listener-supported podcast, and you all have made it possible. So without any further ado, let's go and, well... (laughs) Do further. Enjoy. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 69. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 69 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. In our last episode, we examined some American matters, as Woodrow Wilson's flaws essentially were explored. With that episode listened to, you may not feel like you've much time for the guy, but hopefully you've learned by now that people are rarely as bad as you might think. There was a good side to Woodrow Wilson. There was more to him than the hypocrisy, the flawed vision, and, oh yeah, the racism, which we didn't even really address. Wilson wanted peace. He wanted a better world for all of the peoples of the world, and he believed that the League of Nations would deliver and protect this world. First, though, he knew that a peace treaty which established that organisation would have to be signed, and to reach that destination, he was willing, as we learned, to do an awful lot of compromising. The belief supported also by his former best friend Edward House, 
was that compromise would be worthwhile, because whatever flaws the terms of the peace treaty might contain, the League of Nations, which it also contained, would be able to make these wrongs into rights. Notwithstanding the naivety of this idea, it was supported by good intentions, and these intentions have to count for something, right? Well, fortunately, it isn't my job to make you like Woodrow Wilson, but it is my job to examine what the Germans were doing in the second half of May, and how they planned to react to the peace terms, which they had been handed. In addition, we have to check back in on the Council of Four and see how they were doing, since they had watched over that Greek adventure on the 15th of May. This episode has two major objectives then, and it is suitably larger because of it, so I hope you enjoy it and you're not too scared off as we begin our first task by delving straight into the German situation. Let's just say, if you thought you had a bone to pick with Wilson after listening to the last episode, then you ought to get in line behind the Germans, who couldn't help but feel utterly betrayed by the sheer contrast between Wilson's promises versus Wilson's reality. Ever since the outbreak of war between Germany and the United States in April 1917, the United States lacked any formal diplomatic representation with that state, and indeed, relations would not be restored for a surprisingly long time until December 1921. In the meantime, the United States relied on several observers who happened to be present in Berlin for its roundup on what was going down in the German capital. Berlin, while it had since been supplanted as the capital by the less revolutionary Weimar, was still an excellent place to get news and gauge the mood of the German nation. So it was that one American observer, the young attaché Charles B. Dyer, represented what amounted to the sole diplomatic representation of the United States in Germany by mid-May 1919. In his Berlin liaison office, which doubled as a reconnaissance post for US intel gathering, Dyer was able to keep appraised of the latest news in the former German capital, and on the 7th of May, the same day that the terms of the peace were handed to Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau in Versailles, news of these terms were later communicated to Berlin. The Allies held back on publishing the terms of the treaty until the third week of May, preferring to keep the terms known only in official channels inaccessible to the public. As it transpired, though, holding back on publishing the terms meant that everyone in Berlin fed on a diet of rumours which the German government would be able to capitalise upon. Once these terms were revealed, public opinion in Berlin was united over their inherent harshness. Dyer wrote on the evening of the 7th of May that The situation is very tense. The German people do not accept such peace terms. They have never been enlightened concerning the true feeling of the Allied countries towards Germany. The shock to them is all the more terrific because they were consistently encouraged in the notion that peace on the basis of President Wilson's principles would not establish Germany's guilt and the necessity of atonement and reparation, that the 14 points would be construed in the way in which the German government preferred to construe them. The entirely insincere belief that the armistice was only concluded on condition that President Wilson's peace programme, as interpreted for the benefit of Germany, would be enforced, had become general. The people had been led to believe that Germany had been unluckily beaten after a fine and clean fight owing to the ruinous effect of the blockade on the home morale and perhaps some too far-reaching plans of her leaders, but that happily President Wilson would arrange a compromise peace. The result is that President Wilson and the United States are now subject to the most scathing attacks. The Allies have gone back on their solemnly pledged word, it is said, and President Wilson has proved himself the greatest hypocrite in all history, 
For did he not consistently maintain that the Allies did not wish to destroy the German people? There was some concern in German circles that fanning the flames of outrage would only get them so far though, and that it might spark some kind of revolution which would not engender sympathy among the nations of the world. Interestingly, perhaps because German intelligence had a finger on the pulse of Allied opinion in Paris, the Germans quickly adopted a strategy which was designed to mobilise liberal opinion against the treaty terms, and to garner sympathy among the Allies, with the hope that this campaign would create such negative PR for the Allies, and for Wilson especially, that they would have no choice but to backpedal. No less than Friedrich Ebert, the President of Germany, got in on this strategy, and on the 13th of May, he referred to the peace terms as a moral declaration of war, before adding, In our view, President Wilson should have refused to sign the treaty if he was forced to abandon his 14 points altogether. American democracy as a whole will become a party to this document of shame if Wilson's name remains on it. We are depending on America to hold to its word, despite all the objections the perpetrators of this policy of brazen thievery may raise. How this should be done is not our concern. This is the concern of those who proposed the 14 points. If this sacred promise is broken, then the American people will be approving the fact that their name was misused to deceive a great nation that had fought bravely into laying down its arms. As per this strategy in Germany to mobilise liberal sympathy, it was important that the Germans were careful in the words that they used. Ebert ordered that the treaty's terms be deemed unrealisable and intolerable rather than unacceptable, because it would indicate that accepting the terms was simply not within the realm of possibility, rather than too offensive to be accepted by the German government. Of course, this distinction meant little when Germans were free to express themselves, and Ebert's own Chancellor, Philip Scheidemann, had called the treaty unacceptable in a speech on the 12th of May. Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau, the head of the German delegation in Paris, actually congratulated the Chancellor on his speech, even though officially the German delegation was supposed to be following the same moral mobilisation strategy as the President. Did this mean that the German delegation was preparing to reject the terms? Something we have to bear in mind about this period is that, rightly or wrongly, the Germans were taken aback by surprise, and they were bitterly disappointed with the terms on offer. The agreement which had taken Germany out of the war, the narrative went, had been based on Wilson's 14 points, which had centred on the philosophy of a peace arrangement which wasn't unduly harsh, would result in no loss of territory and no reparations bill. Wilson, it was expected in Germany, would temper the emotions of the more involved European leaders. These expectations were based partially on what Wilson and his representatives within Germany had been telling the Germans both before and during the peace negotiations. Yet as we have learned, they were also based on the misplaced hope within German hearts and minds that having played no small role in instigating the war, they would be able to now get off relatively scot-free. When this was revealed to be impossible, Wilson would have perceived something of that tragedy of disappointment which he had predicted back in December 1918, and which he had so feared. It was impossible, as Wilson appreciated then, to make the Allies and the Germans happy, and while he certainly hoped for a better world, He also feared that the traditional problems of the old order would complicate and hamper this mission. Germans had bought into this vision of a better, fairer world, especially pacifists and liberals in the country who imagined that their American-sponsored peace treaty was only the beginning 
and that into that future, the New World Order would be led by a principled American president who wanted only the best for the German people. That this same president now added his name to such a stark peace treaty stunned those apologists in Germany, who had always advocated believing in Wilson and his message. They certainly felt they had been duped by Wilson, but they also felt guilty now for duping their peers in turn. One prolific liberal author in Germany wrote to his friend saying, You remember that I belonged to those who believed in President Wilson's words. President Wilson was pledged to obtain for a democratised Germany the same security, the same independence and the same opportunities for growth which other free nations enjoy. All those who were hopeful that America would give the world a new evangel of brotherhood have been cruelly deceived. Let no man believe that a German, who, at the risk of the heaviest moral and material sacrifices, has fought the spirit of militarism in his own country, ever will submit to foreign brutality. The sham League of Nations, framed in Paris, means eternal war and everlasting hatred. This was at least a more moderate condemnation than that given by Gustav Nosk, Germany's Minister for Defence at the time, and the man responsible for suppressing the Spartacist revolt through the use of the Freikorps in previous months. Nosk exclaimed to an American observer on the 10th of May that You and your president believe in open diplomacy. Well, I'll give you some open diplomacy. You, Americans, go back home and bury yourself with your Wilson. Wilson watched England and France rob the German corpse, and we must now assume that he approved of it. And remember one thing which the Germans can't forget. It was America that knocked out Germany. Germany's disintegration is due to Wilson, due to his 14 points. And Germans were not the only wounded party. We saw in the last episode how members of Wilson's delegation objected instinctively to a peace which had compromised so heavily on the original morality of the American message, especially in regards to Asia and in deference to the British and French interests. General Tasker Bliss and Secretary of State Lansing were loud in their opposition, as we have seen, and House was the most important defender of the President's actions. But the revelation of the 440 Articles of the Peace Treaty also caused some American delegates to actually submit their resignations. The most prolific such resignation came from William Bullitt, last seen leading a fact-finding mission into Russia in early March. That Wilson effectively marginalised Bullitt upon his return, and subsequently disavowed all knowledge of his expedition, cannot have helped smooth relations between the two, but it also didn't help that Bullitt's wounded vanity, as much as his offended principles, were on the line. Having never felt truly appreciated, Bullitt made public his loud opposition, not just to the treaty terms, but also to the way that the chief did business. He talked to any press organ which would listen, and his peers in Paris threw him a farewell banquet out of sympathy. On the 16th of May, the night before he sent resignation notes to House, Lansing and Wilson, Bullitt dramatically called a protest meeting against the treaty's terms. There, he gathered up all those who would resign as a testimony to the failure of the Versailles Conference, and provided these people with red roses. Nine members of the American delegation, mostly young peers, joined him in resigning, but for those that did not, and those he believed traitors to the higher cause of liberalism, Bullitt actually handed those people yellow daffodils. Officially, Bullitt did not resign his position over the failure of his mission or over the Russian question. Bullitt resigned officially because of what he believed to be the unjust and ultimately destructive character of the Versailles Treaty. To House, Bullitt expressed his anguish that 
no good ever will issue from a thing so evil. That evil being the treaty. Bullitt did not even mention Russia, and in his note to Wilson, he wrote, Our government has now consented to deliver the suffering peoples of the world new oppressions, subjections and dismemberments, a new century of war. Still at war, Bullitt reminded the president, Russia, the acid test of goodwill, for me, as for you, has not even been understood. Most important, as Bullitt had recently warned Wilson throughout the war and peace, he should have tapped into sympathetic communities throughout the world if the president genuinely wanted to establish a new international order based upon broad and universal principles of right and justice. Wilson had been forced against his better judgment to compromise, and according to Bullitt, the abandonment of the principle of freedom of the seas makes new international conflicts certain. Furthermore, the New World Order, which President Wilson supposedly led the liberal forces of the world toward, had been lost because the battle had been fought behind closed doors, as Bullet put it. These had not been open agreements openly arrived at, as the 14 points had promised. According to Bullet, there were millions of men like myself in every nation who had faith in you. Had being the key word, because according to Bullet and many others, Wilson had let these millions down. Were these attacks fair and genuine, or merely the bitter expressions of a vain man who regretted that he never got the moment in the sun to shine that he felt he deserved? According to one of Bullitt's biographers, the vibrant and confident graduate of Yale and Harvard made the mistake not only of believing in Wilson's hype, but also of believing in his own. The historian Michael Casella Blackburn wrote, Bullitt was right when he complained that liberalism was too delicate a plant, too entwined with the moral integrity of its prophet. The vision of liberalism, Bullitt pursued, enunciated by Wilson in the 14 points, reflected American dreams of a world operating on American principles, much of which were enmeshed in American culture and myths. But Wilson had to negotiate with the French, British, Italians and Japanese, among others, in order to effect the peace. Bullitt never understood his own insignificant role or the contribution of the United States that Wilson had to stand on while negotiating. The French, British and Russians took the brunt of the victory over the central powers. They had every intention of making a peace to suit their own national interests. For Wilson, the goal was not necessarily to please Germany with a favourable peace. It was to improve the world by enshrining the League of Nations within that peace so that all nations of the world would be protected and bettered by its policies. If Wilson feared anything, he feared that the League would be defeated, or that it would become a partisan issue and, therefore, opposed, as such, by the Republicans. Republicans, in this nightmare scenario, would oppose the League because they wished to prevent Democrats gaining political credit, and to prevent Wilson mobilising support for a potential third term, which, incidentally, Woodrow Wilson waited until spring 1920 before ruling out. We know that Wilson feared this outcome of the Republicans shouting down his league because he said so on regular occasions, and not only in May when the terms of the treaty were revealed and Republican opposition had plainly transformed the league and the treaty generally into a partisan issue. In his first speech to the Democratic Committee, all the way back on the 28th of February 1919, during his short return back home, Wilson performed a significant, often forgotten speech, where he emphasised precisely how critically important it was that Republicans and Democrats unite on the League issue. 
The speech is all the more interesting because of how incredibly partisan the League later became, but there was at least rumblings that the covenant which Wilson brought back with him would be opposed by the Republicans. Certainly within the week, Henry Cabot Lodge would release his reservations document and send the round robin through the usual channels, underlining in the process the clear political divisions which the League had drawn. On the final day of February 1919, though, the President could not be certain that this opposition was guaranteed, and among his political peers of the Democratic Party, he urged them to do all in their power to avoid this rift, in the name of the greater good. The speech itself was several minutes long, but we'll take the most notable parts of it here. Among other things, Wilson said, The real issue of the day, gentlemen, is the League of Nations, and I think we must be very careful to serve the country in the right way with regard to that issue. We ought not even to create the appearance of trying to make that a party issue. I think it would be wise if the several Democratic National Committee men were to get in touch with their state organisations upon returning home and suggest this course of action. That the Democratic state organisations get into conference with the Republican state organisations and say to them, Here is the great issue upon which the future peace of the world depends. It ought not to be made a party issue or to divide upon party lines. The country ought to support it, regardless of party. Now we propose to you that you pass resolutions supporting it, as we intend to do, and we will not anticipate you in the matter if you agree to that policy. Let us stand back of it and not make a party issue of it. Of course, if they decline, then it is perfectly legitimate, it seems to me, for the democratic organisation, if it pleases, to pass resolutions, framing these resolutions in as non-partisan language as is possible, but nevertheless doing what citizens ought to do in matters of this sort. But not without first making it a matter of party record that it has made these approaches to the Republican organisation and has proposed this similarity of action. In that way we can accomplish a double object. We put it up to them to support the real opinion of their own people and we get instructed by the resolutions and we find where the weak spots are and where the fighting has to be done for this great issue. Because, believe me, gentlemen, the civilised world cannot afford to have us lose this fight. I tried to state in Boston what it would mean to the people of the world if the United States did not support this great idea with cordiality. But I was not able to speak when I tried fully to express my thoughts. I tell you, frankly, I choked up. I could not do it. The thing reaches the depth of tragedy. There is a sense in which I can see that the hope entertained by the people of the world with regard to us is a tragical hope. Tragical in this sense, that it is so great, so far-reaching, it runs out to such depths that we cannot in the nature of things satisfy it. The world cannot go as fast in the direction of ideal results as these people believe the United States can carry them, and that is what makes me choke up when I try to talk about it, the consciousness of what they want us to do and our relative inadequacy. And yet there is a great deal that we can do, and the immediate thing that we can do is have an overwhelming national endorsement of this great plan. If we have that, we will have settled most of the immediate political difficulties in Europe. So that our immediate duty, not as Democrats but as American citizens, is to concert the most powerful campaign that was ever concerted in this country in favour of supporting the League of Nations, and to put it up to everybody, the Republican organisations and every other organisation, to say where they stand, and to make a record and explain this thing to the people. In one sense it does not make any difference what the constitution of the League of Nations is. The present constitution, in my judgement, is a very conservative and sound document. There are some things in it which I would have phrased otherwise. I am modest enough to believe that the American draft was better than this, 
but it is the result of an honest work, as I ever knew to be done. Here we sat around the table where the representatives of 14 nations, the five great powers so-called, gave themselves two delegates apiece, and they allowed the other nine nations one delegate apiece. But it did not count by members, it counted by purpose. The world expects not only, but demands of us, that we shall do this thing successfully, and we cannot go away without doing it. There was not a statesman in that conference who would dare to go home saying that he had merely signed a treaty of peace, no matter how excellent the terms of that treaty are, because he has received, if not an official, at least an influential mandate, to see to it that something is done in addition which will make the thing stand after it is done, and he dare not go home without doing that. There's so much to unpack in this speech, and I've been saving it for quite some time because of how prophetic, ironic, and tragic it all is. It could easily be trotted out as one of those tragically ironic quotes where one lists all the pitfalls which must be avoided, only to fall headlong into each and every one of them. Actions speak louder than words, and unfortunately for Wilson, while he professed urgent and eager sentiments to the effect that both parties would have to come together, he did not make it easy for the Republicans to join forces with him, because he didn't take the first step. He seems to have expected the central importance of the League document to speak for itself, to transcend party politics, even when he did not make much of an effort, personally, to transcend party politics. In that final sentence, where Wilson notes that there was not a statesman in that conference who would dare to go home with merely a treaty of peace, no matter how excellent the terms of that treaty are, Wilson displays some naivety of his own when he imagines that the terms of the peace treaty with Germany had any chance of being excellent. Wilson was correct that in addition to the final treaty, something else was needed which will make the thing stand after it is done, as he put it, but he was incorrect to believe that this something was the League of Nations. The treaty could not stand because it was so open to criticism and so unlike what the Germans had been expecting, and the League could not pass because... Contrary to his expressed intentions on the 28th of February, it became the most partisan of all the issues in American politics until it was finally defeated by spring 1920. In the same speech that Wilson urged his Democratic peers to get the Republicans on side, the President also lashed out at those individuals who opposed the concept of the League, primarily Republicans, to the effect that There is nothing I would like to do so much as really to say in parliamentary language what I think of the people that are opposing it, the League. I would reserve the right in private to say in unparliamentary language what I think of them, but in public I would try to stick to parliamentary language. Because of all the blind and little provincial people, they are the littlest and most contemptible. It is not their character so much that I have a contempt for, though that contempt is thoroughgoing, but their minds. They have not got even good working imitations of minds. But the beauty of it is that their ignorance and their provincialism can be made so perfectly visible. They have horizons that do not go beyond their parish. They do not even reach to the edges of the parish, because the other people know more than they do. The whole impulse of the modern time is against them. They are going to have the most conspicuously contemptible names in history. The gibbets that they are going to be executed on by future historians will scrape the heavens they will be so high. They won't be turned in the direction of heaven at all, but they will be very tall, and I do not know any fate more terrible than to be exhibited in that future catalogue of the men who were utterly condemned by the whole spirit of humanity. If I did not despise them, I would be sorry for them. 
Anybody in the Senate or House can say abusive things he pleases about the President, but it shocks the sense of propriety of the whole country if the President says what he thinks about them. And that makes it very fortunate that the term of the President is limited, because no President could stand it for a number of years. But when the lid is off, I'm going to resume my study of the dictionary to find adequate terms in which to describe the fatuity of these gentlemen with their poor little minds that never got anywhere but run around in a circle and think they're going somewhere. I cannot express my contempt for their intelligence, but because I think I know the people of the United States, I can predict their future with absolute certainty. I'm not concerned as to the ultimate outcome of this thing at all, not for a moment, but I am concerned that the outcome should be brought about immediately, just as promptly as possible. So my hope is that we will all put on our war paint, not as Democrats but as Americans, get the true American pattern of war paint and a real hatchet and go out on the war path and get a collection of scalps that has never been excelled in the history of American warfare. What a bizarre conclusion to a speech that began by urging non-partisanship. Wilson knew full well, even on the 28th of February 1919, that Republicans predominantly were in opposition to the League, and that Henry Cabot Lodge was the most renowned in expressing his opposition to several of the Covenant's articles. Condemning those that stood against the League as essentially stupid and urging his peers to collect the scalps of the opposition can't have had a particularly inspiring effect on those that stood in opposition. Rather than express his understanding for their concerns, legitimate concerns insofar as the League represented a significant break with the past for American foreign policy, Wilson simply stayed atop his pedestal and lobbed condemnations in their direction. He would later fume at that segment of American political opinion which had so determinedly opposed his beloved League, when in reality all that segment had really done was rise to the challenge which Wilson presented to them. In short, Wilson urged the opposition to behave unlike the opposition, even though he continued to treat them as the opposition. He would later react with indignation to Lodge's reservations, and notwithstanding Lodge's sincerity in presenting that document, this did represent the President's first true opportunity to demonstrate his own non-partisan nature by meeting the opposition somewhere in the middle. I hope, Wilson noted in mid-March 1919, the friends and supporters of the treaty will vote against the Lodge reservations. Wilson's penchant for compromising selectively in the Paris Peace Conference was thus not reflected back home, where he felt compelled to stick resolutely to the Covenant as originally drafted on the 14th of February and then finalised on the 29th of April 1919. This did not make the reservationists go away though, and it meant that Wilson's party was unable to court the moderate opposition party, who favoured the League with some adjustments. In direct contradiction to his command to curry favour with the opposition, Wilson continued to operate as though only his vision of the League would do. Given the choice between his League or no League at all, the latter option was preferred by those that stood against him, particularly when the President's condescending behaviour, his arrogance and his ignorance of their concerns were added into the equation. Unfortunately, Wilson proved to be equally ill-suited for responding to the Germans. The speech performed by Brockdorf Ransau on the 7th of May made a bad impression on him, and he had taken many aspects of the speech as personal insults. In fact, the allusion to the moral declaration of war by Brockdorf Ransau affected a serious turn in Wilson's attitude towards the Germans, and its foreign minister in particular. 
To Wilson, German Foreign Minister Brockdorf Ransau was as unsuitable for the position of representing the German people as the imperial government had been half a year earlier. While he could not get rid of Brockdorf Ransau as he did the Wilhelmine regime, he could make life difficult for them by punishing them with inflexibility, seen in his announcement to the Germans on the 8th of May that he would insist on a fortnight only as the deadline for their reply. Efforts to establish contact between the German foreign minister and the American delegation, while approved by Clemenceau, were on two occasions blocked by Wilson personally, who did not believe that the stiff, standoffish, but also incredibly anxious Ulrich von brockdorf Ransau should be listened to or trusted in anything other than an official capacity. In fact, Wilson expressed the view on the 9th of May that he had hope from the fact that the rest of Germany was liberating itself from its Junkers. With the exception of brockdorf Ransau, the German delegates appeared to be reasonable people. Wilson's demeanour towards the actual treaty changed as well. Perhaps because he felt under attack from so many fronts, Wilson doubled down in his defence of the treaty's terms, insisting that it did in fact adhere to the 14 points, despite all claims to the contrary. Where once he had deemed it harsh, severe and not ideal, or where he took the time to blame the unfavourable circumstances on the equally unfavourable treaty, now he wrote to Jan Smuts on the 16th of May to the effect that The treaty is undoubtedly very severe indeed. I have of course had an opportunity to go over each part of it, as it was adopted, and I must say that though it is in many respects harsh, I do not think it is on the whole unjust in the circumstances. I am in entire agreement with you that real consideration should be given to the objections that are being raised against it by the Germans, and I think I find a glowing inclination to treat their representations fairly. I feel the terrible responsibility of this whole business, but invariably my thoughts go back to the very great offence against civilization which the German state committed, and the necessity for making it evident once and for all that such things can only lead to the most severe punishment. An important point to note here, which the historian Klaus Schwebe does, is the reference to the German state. By using this term, German state, Wilson seems to make no distinction between the Weimar Republic of New and the Wilhelmine regime of Old. This is incredibly significant, if it is in fact the case, because it means that Wilson saw the Weimar Republic as the moral equivalent of the old Germany which had caused the war and committed all the crimes therein. While the Germans that staffed the Weimar Republic saw themselves as breaking with the past and fulfilling the wishes of the American president by converting themselves to a liberal democracy, Wilson may well still have viewed the new republic as a different face of the same Germany which had recently been defeated. If Wilson failed to distinguish between the two very different regimes, then that meant he would be virtually immune to appeals from the statesmen of that new republic to treat her fairly, or, as the panic notes from Weimar increasingly expressed, the fear to the effect that the prestige of the new republic would be seriously jeopardised if she was made to accept this punitive peace. This latter fear, that Weimar would essentially become synonymous with surrender and capitulation at the feet of the Allies, to the shame of all Germans, was in fact fulfilled, thanks in no small part, of course, to misinformation and propaganda by successive German regimes, culminating with the Nazis. If it was the case that Weimar viewed Brockdorf Ransau and the Weimar Republic he represented as equal to the German Empire, then Brockdorf Ransau's subsequent appeals to Wilson's office, communicated in short, well-researched, well-argued notes from the 9th of May might actually have done more harm than good. 
it is entirely possible that Brockdorf Ransau did not realise precisely how much resentment Wilson had for him, and that by pressing the issue, he only made the situation worse. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, Ulrich von Brockdorf Ransau's loud talk of expressions of disappointment with the treaty moved the big three to discuss what they would do in the event that Germany refused to sign. Their meeting in the morning of the 17th of May addressed this question, as well as questions related to it, such as reparations and the relations with new states that surrounded Germany. They also discussed whether it would be wise to publish the full extent of the treaty, whereas before, only official government channels had copies and news outlets possessed only the summaries. The Allies discussed the hostilities then ongoing between the Ukrainians and the Poles, with Lloyd George typically supporting the anti-Polish narrative and Clemenceau opining that the Ukrainians were more than half-Bolsheviks themselves. Wilson urged that the conference would be discredited if the peace could not be maintained in the region, between Poland and the Ukraine that is, and he determined to communicate an official statement from the conference to Paderewski, which would confirm Allied confidence in Paderewski's government. Evidently, then, the Allies had more on their plate than simply considering what the Germans would do next, and in the afternoon of the 17th of May, discussion turned to the recent Greek landing at Smyrna and the subsequent Italian behaviour towards Asia Minor, above all in the Italian landing of 500 soldiers at a place called Scala Nova, a few hundred kilometres below Smyrna. Orlando claimed that he had next to no information on this development and that he would have to talk to Sonino. Talk then turned to Russia, where it was noted that the white Russian general Anton Denikin and Alexander Kolchak had won great victories in their respective theatres, South Russia and Siberia respectively. It was noted that the foreign ministers of the various delegations were eager to hear what policy the Allies would adopt towards Russia. In the event, it would not be until the 26th of May that the Allies would issue a statement identifying with the aims of Kolchak and recognising his regime as the true Russian government. Until then, the Allies delayed as they attempted to gain more information on the Russian subject. Sunday the 18th of May being a day off for the stenographer at least, the Big Three returned on the morning of Monday the 19th of May and immediately addressed the question of what would occur if the Germans refused to sign. Evidently there was some concern that this might occur and in the event of such a standoff it was believed essential that the Allied leaders knew what their options were. There to present the facts and figures was Marshal Foch who listed off the spread of the Allied divisions along the Rhine and Belgium to illustrate the Allies' strategic options if Germany did say no. Lloyd George authorised the commander of the Allied forces to prepare his forces to march by the 27th of May, or in other words, a week tomorrow. According to the original provisions of the treaty's terms, the Germans had two weeks to comply, and this deadline began ticking down from the 8th of May. Thus, Lloyd George said, the Germans would be told on Thursday the 22nd of May, once the deadline expired, that they had five days to comply or the Allies would begin to march. Foch was told to liaise with Churchill, the British Minister for War, to make this plan possible. The Allies then adjourned for half an hour. Lloyd George opened the 19th of May 11.30am meeting by detailing news he had received from Berlin, which he presented for the benefit of his peers. According to this information, some German troops marching past the British embassy, where the British military mission was quartered, had called out, down with England, but the demonstration had been half-hearted, and the men had been grinning at the time. There had been a protest against the terms of the peace, in which eight to 10,000 people had taken part, 
but they had made no demonstration in passing the embassy. There was no indication of serious movements of troops westward, and the informant doubted whether the Germans would make any attempt to retake Posen, which would mean starting the war all over again, except in case of great desperation. Great Depression was reported in all parts of Berlin. The minutes record George Clemenceau confirming this news, and the big three then moved to discuss the Polish-Ukrainian front in brief before turning their attention to the Bolsheviks. Efforts to reach an agreement with that revolutionary government having failed, Lloyd George opined that this was because the Bolsheviks didn't want to miss their chance to use force. All the information I had received, however, was that the Bolsheviks were collapsing in a military sense. Time would tell how wrong the Prime Minister's information was. Discussion then went to Hungary and Béla Kuhn's isolated government. Wilson indicated that he did not trust the Romanians and that it would be wise to hold back from any kind of advance into Budapest, even if Ioan Bratianu, the Romanian premier, had offered, and even if it would have been militarily possible to do so. Clemenceau agreed and said that it would be sensible to wait and see what Germany did when the fortnight deadline expired on Thursday the 22nd of May before acting in Hungary. The French premier added that from the information he had, it was likely that the Germans would ask for more time in coming to a decision on the treaty's terms. And this is indeed what happened in the end. What happened next was interesting and alarming all at once. Italy was conspicuous by her absence, but Lloyd George presented a record of a conversation between himself and Orlando the previous day. During the course of that conversation, on Sunday, Orlando had declared his firm convictions that the Italian people were desperate for Fiume and that they would happily give up Asia Minor if they got it. This revelation prompted the big three to weigh in, in their turn, about what to do about Turkey. A visit from the Indian delegation on the 17th of May, two days before, had convinced them all that Turkey should not be divided among the Allies, since this would outrage Muslim opinion throughout the world. Lloyd George declared that he had changed his mind about dividing up Turkey for the mandatory powers, and Wilson confessed that he had forgotten what he had said about Turkey in his 14 points. He and Mr Lloyd George had said that they would not destroy Turkish sovereignty, noted Sir Maris Hankey doing the minutes, adding, He, Wilson, had forgotten this until reminded of it on Saturday. Mr Lloyd George said he had also forgotten it. These eye-watering confessions were bad enough in the context of peacemaking. The idea that the Big Three could have forgotten which countries would or would not have their sovereignty destroyed doesn't exactly bode well, but this was after the Allied-sponsored Greek landing had already taken place in what was legally Turkish land. True, the region where Greeks had landed was populated by numerous ethnic Greeks and Christians, but there had been little effort made to control Venizelos' ambitions or wider plans. One had to ask whether, if Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson had remembered that they had not intended to destroy Turkish sovereignty, or if Wilson had been more familiar with his own 14 points, would they have sanctioned the Greek landing in the first place? When the Big Three then fumbled with the technicalities of still holding on to Constantinople, or empowering the Sultan to live and work from that capital, Clemenceau reminded his peers that the terms would have to be drawn very carefully, as the Turkish government was a very bad one. This atrocity and ignorant diplomacy notwithstanding, the big three moved on to the larger issue at stake, which was not, apparently, the independence of a Turkish state, but what Italy wanted. Again, it came down to Fiume. Lloyd George evidently wanted to be rid of the whole affair, and he expressed the view that 
If the Italians could be got out of Asia Minor altogether, it would, in my opinion, be worth giving them something they were especially concerned in, even if it involved the Allies swallowing their words. But Wilson disagreed, saying that he hoped Lloyd George would not press this point of view. Wilson noted that he was bound to adhere to his principle that no peoples should be handed over to another rule without their consent. These were the same principles, Orlando would have noted, that Wilson had compromised before, and would compromise again. But Orlando wasn't here, so Lloyd George simply expressed the facts surrounding Fiume, saying that Fiume was a town with an Italian flavour and an Italian name. No one who knew Fiume could think of it as anything but an Italian city. It is true that if the suburbs were included, there would be a small majority in favour of the Yugoslavs. If, however, the Yugoslavs were willing to accept another harbour to be constructed by the Italians somewhere else, would it not then be possible to hand Fiume, with their consent, to the Italians? Surely this would be worthwhile if, by these means, the Italians could be bought off Dalmatia. And in this respect, I and Monsieur Clemenceau were in a difficult position owing to the Treaty of London, and if they could also be bought off Asia Minor. The latter was, in my view, most important to the peace of the world. Lloyd George evidently wished to seize the opportunity which the Italian desperation presented, and he sought to soothe Wilson's conscience by insisting that Fiume was, after all, much more Italian than he may have previously thought. What Lloyd George really wanted, though, was for the Italians to abscond themselves from Asia Minor, since this arrangement with Orlando meant that Italy would essentially trade Asia Minor for Fiume, Lloyd George was adamant that Wilson should accept it because it would mollify the Italian mood and guarantee that no future conflict between either Greeks and Italians or Italians and Turks would erupt in the future. Furthermore, the Prime Minister seemed to believe that it would temper Italian ambitions for Dalmatia as a whole. As an added bonus, giving Italy Fiume would render the awkward Treaty of London void and it would release Britain and France from their obligations to Italy in that treaty. Since Fiume was what the Italians really wanted, since the city did contain a large Italian population, and since Orlando was willing to give up so much in return, could the President now consent to release that city? We know that Wilson would not, and that Fiume instead became a free city, largely because, in Wilson's estimation, Italy did not possess the ability or funds to construct a port for the Yugoslavs as compensation for Fiume. Even though in the end, that term of Italy constructing a port for Yugoslavia would enter into the conditions of this new Fiume free state. Sir Maurice Hanke left the meeting shortly thereafter at any rate for a meeting with Venizelos, so the minutes stop there. That afternoon, the Italians were again on trial as the interminable distraction of the Greek landing in Smyrna was brought up and the Italians were pressed for information on their landing at Scala Nova. Orlando and Sonino started the meeting badly by requesting that Venizelos should leave, and Venizelos politely did. Wilson objected to this, as did the other two Allied leaders, but Lloyd George didn't help his case by insisting that no Greek soldier had set foot on Smyrna without Italian consent, to which Sonino replied that this was incorrect, since approval had been given for the Greek venture on the 6th of May. Wilson then turned it around by saying that this wasn't the fault of the big three that Italy had been absent, since the Italians had been absent on their own volition. Sonino claimed that the Greeks had acted counter to agreements made between the Athens and Rome governments regarding Asia Minor in the past, but Lloyd George insisted that they had only authorised the Greek landing to defend the Greek and Christian population of Smyrna, who were actively being attacked and massacred. There had been no such massacres at Scala Nova, where the Italians had landed, 
So why had the Italians landed there? Well, Sonino insisted in reply that there had been outrages committed in this place, and that there had been general unrest. Furthermore, Italy had been promised Scala Nova in addition to Smyrna as per the Treaty of London. Lloyd George claimed that the Treaty of London promised no such thing as Scala Nova, but Sonino pointed to the specific article which promised the Mediterranean neighbourhood of Asia Minor, which the Italian government interpreted as that region. Clemenceau claimed that the Italians had never shown any interest in the region during the war, and Sonino replied that Italy had offered troops. Clemenceau retorted, quite insensitively, that these were only a few thousand soldiers from Abyssinia, though in this case he meant Somalia. Sonino must have gritted his teeth at this point when he noted that Italy had her hands full fighting Austria. The temperature had risen among the big four once again, and Wilson didn't help matters when he reminded Sonino that the Treaty of London didn't apply to the United States, and thus he did not recognise the Italian right to land troops in Asia Minor, which that treaty entailed. Sonino did not back down though, insisting that negotiations between his government and that of Venizelos had been ignored when Venizelos essentially forced a landing of troops at Smyrna. Why now was the Italian decision to land troops at Scala Nova, a port town of far less importance, coming under such scrutiny? Lloyd George, apparently short of temper by this point, then interjected. By now it must have become clear to the Italians that the big three were dead set against them, operating in any capacity in Asia Minor, and that they were firmly on the side of the Greeks. Lloyd George said, Venizelos had taken no action without the consent of the Council of Four. If Italy preferred to depend upon her own action, she could not expect to take part in the discussions of the Council. As far as I am concerned, unless Italy removed her troops, I would take no further part in the discussion of the Italian claims in Asia Minor. The Italian action is a direct defiance of the Council. It has been done in a way that I do not like to describe. A discussion had actually been in progress with Italy, and the question of Scala Nova had not been decided. I could not imagine anything more insulting to the Council than this action. Sonino replied briefly to this affront, stating that the 1917 Treaty of St. John de Marianne recognised Italy's right to act, as she now did. Wilson said again that the United States did not recognise this treaty, and that the Tsarist Russian regime which had recognised it was no more, so the treaty from 1917 was thus invalid. Sonino said that France recognised this arrangement, and Clemenceau replied that Stephen P. Sean, his foreign minister, had not made this fact clear to him at the time. So the talk went around in circles, and repeatedly Sonino was pressed as to what right Italy had to intervene in the region. In a three-on-one scenario such as this, Sonino cannot have felt anything other than ganged up on. When he once again alluded to the 1917 agreement, Lloyd George replied with some neck that the agreement depended on Italy making an effort in Turkey. One imagines Sonino taking great offence to this note, because it suggested that Italian soldiers had not been pulling their weight in the different fronts, when the point Sonino consistently made was that nobody had helped Italy against Austria. Italy, Sonino exclaimed, had put everything she had into this war, every dollar and every man, and no country had suffered greater strain. The troops had to be put, however, where the pressure was greatest. Perhaps suspecting that they were being somewhat unfair to Italy, Wilson claimed that he was not in any way reproaching Monsieur Sonino. Lloyd George said that he was not reproaching him either. He had, however, 
repeatedly pressed on Monsieur Sonino at Saint-Jean-de-Maurienne that this agreement depended upon a great effort being made for the defeat of Turkey. Before Sonino could express his outrage at this yet again, President Wilson said that the object of all of them was to occupy a position of common counsel. To hear that Italy, without a word to anyone, had landed troops in Asia Minor had been very disconcerting, Wilson said. Lloyd George then followed up with the point that Venizelos had been told that he must not land Greek troops at Scala Nova. The Italians had done this without saying a word to people who were in the same room with them. Lloyd George added that he knew what would be said about a man of business who did such a thing. This was an insidious remark to make, but it indicated more plainly than ever before precisely how wide the gulf between Italy and her allies had become. It was no longer the Big Four, it was now the Big Three and One. Venizelos was called back in, as he and Lloyd George had an exchange about the condition of the Greek position in Smyrna, and not one Italian voice was raised during that conversation. Further discussion over Italy's duties in Asia Minor were addressed, and the Italians were essentially told to withdraw their soldiers. Short briefs on issues such as reparations, the Tsar Valley and other adjustments to wording in the treaty were discussed, but it was plain what the main issue of the afternoon had been. The 19th of May 1919 thus ended in the same way that virtually all of the other days of the conference had ended since this Allied Gulf had emerged, with the Italians bitterly clinging to one side and the big three resolutely standing firm on the other. May was only two-thirds over, but even while the enemy and main object of the conference remained at large, it was apparent that complete agreement between Orlando and his peers was also out of reach. There was no longer time to give so much attention to the Italian question either. She would have to do what she was told, because the most pressing issue by far was that of the Germans, and if the Allies were not united on that question, then the consequences for the world could well be dire. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.